Welcome ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and prefer not to disclose, back to The Undressing Underground Podcast Hello, I am Rob, as always, or most of the time at least, and I'm going to go ahead and cut out the music because this is going to be an unfortunately fairly long introduction because today on the show is Brian Lewis Saunders. Uh, Brian Saunders was introduced to me by Arvo Zylo, who if you've listened to any episode, almost any episode in the past month, you know of by this point because he has played a part in at least four of the last five episodes, I think, as well as a couple before that over the last couple of months. But uh, yeah, after I interviewed him, he sent me a list of suggestions, including Brian Lewis Saunders, because him and uh, the two of them had just done a collaboration and on um, or with... It's hard to explain. Brian Saunders does a lot of fucking stuff. He's mostly known for his uh, painting a portrait every... A self-portrait or creating a self-portrait every single day for the rest of his life. And of that, he's actually mostly known for a period of time about 10 years ago where he did roughly 50 to 60 under the influence of various drugs from crystal meth to bath salts to marijuana to Xanax to mushrooms. Just It's really interesting to look at, but it's basically what's to find him. And I want to talk more about other things, and he definitely wanted to talk about a lot of things. So I'm not... I don't get a lot of opportunities to speak. I mostly just ask questions and then I just sit back and laugh at his insanely depressing and weird stories that he's, uh, that he just, I don't know. It's, I'm, God, I'm not going to redo this again. I'm drunk. But, uh, yeah. So that said, I've been listening to a lot of experimental Australian radio and, uh, different experimental American radio like do or DIY, which isn't really as relevant. And uh, what's it called? Uh, Over the edge with, I think his name is Don Joyce from negative land. And so because this episode involves so much of just Brian Saunders, um, unloading on these insanely depressing and intense stories, (laughs) Similar to his stand-up tragedy, I imagine, but I didn't cry, so it didn't work. Uh, so what I did was I decided to have some fun and be a little experimental. Mental. God, I am more drunk than I thought I was. But so because of that, I reached back out to Arvo and asked him if he wanted to score the episode, and he said no because that's an insane thing to ask somebody with like under a week to do it. But he did put me in the direction of a piece, a three hour long piece he did for something or other uh, that ended up not actually happening. And so it's just been sitting obscured on this one archive.org playlist for how many years now. Um, But I'm not going to explain it well, so I'll just let you listen to Arvo describe it real quick. 
I was asked by a friend of mine named, he calls himself Jack Absinthe, who lives in New York now. Uh, he he was a graphic designer for a while, but I guess somehow he got into uh, curating art exhibits or uh, being an art buyer or something like that. Mm-hmm. He's at this big shot art gallery. Uh, and, you know, I was happy for him. I, I went there in a suit and everything. Uh, but he asked me, and he sent me specific files. Uh, he said, you know, I want you to make this a, into a dark and brooding soundscape. And he's sending me these songs from, like, the 20s. You know, <laughs> uh, basically, he's trying to capture Berlin uh, cabaret-type stuff from the 20s, you know, decadence and debauchery and all that. And, you know, it, it, some of it is very uh, upbeat. Some of it is a little bit mournful and lovelorn and stuff like that. But um, basically, I... I just did a series of slowing down certain loops, and I I only really I don't really use effects a lot. Uh, generally, I mean, you know, if you hear them, they're they're probably going to be like instead of a delay, it's going to be like fifty layers of something just slightly staggered, so it sounds like delay. Because I'm just I, I don't know, but but uh, you know, distortion is the same way. It's like it's generally going to be a gazillion layers of something um, instead of just putting a distortion on there because I, uh, I I don't really like relying on any kind of software that could be like temporal and just kind of dated. You know, I'm only really using a mix-down session, not really um, generating sounds on a computer. Mm-hmm. I use samples and I uh, slow them down or speed them up and uh, sequence them in pretty elaborate and obsessive and nutty repetition situations. So um, it's just a lot of layers of that, uh, of, of me slowing down loops from cabaret music from the 20s. <laughs> and uh, it, the theme of the night was called Grand Guignol. And um, God, I'm trying to remember the details of that. I read about it last week when we talked about it, but I can't remember anything anymore. Um well, I can always just write it up but, in a description or mention it myself. It was, yeah, I mean, maybe you could just quote Wikipedia or something like that, but I mean, uh, it's, it's important. You know, I hate, I hate doing things that are referential that I, it's like I made a good, I did a good amount of research just to see if I can throw in any kind of symbolism or anything like that. And, uh, hmm. I don't remember any of it right now. <laughs> <laughs> that but, happens. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's terrible. It's like I'll I'll use an occult symbol and I, then I won't remember what it means or something. <laughs> it's like at that time for months it seemed so personal and so connected and then I just don't remember it at all. So what Arvo was talking about is the Grand Guignol, I don't know how you say it, uh, but the Wikipedia page translates it as the theater of the great puppet known as the Grand... It's a fucking word again, and I can't say because I'm not French, and I failed all my college language courses, but uh, was a theater in oh God, the Pagal area, Paris, uh, from its opening in 1897 until its closing in 1962. It specialized in a naturalistic horror shows. Uh, its name is often used as general term for graphic amoral horror entertainment, a genre popular from Elizabeth, Elizabethan and Jacobian theater. For instance, Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus and Webster's The Duchess of 
Malfi and the White Devil to today's splatter films. Uh, I'll put a link to it on the blog because I, oh God, I cannot speak for the life of me. Anyway, Brian Lewis Saunders. He's a fucking really interesting guy. I don't want to, I I don't want to sell him short at all. So just know there's some weird shit in the episode of me just fucking around for fun because he has a history of, uh, working with a bunch of noise musicians. So it seemed like a good opportunity for me just to, you know, experiment myself. And he was cool with it. Arvin was cool with it. So I hope you enjoy. And I hope you also listen to the bonus episode I posted on uh, YouTube yesterday, which talks about the project that Arvo and Brian did together. It's really interesting, and you'll hear a part of it later in the episode. Most of the uh, the stuff is um, from Arvo's bloodbath piece, but there's a little bit that'll be fairly obvious as from their uh, the pleasure tunnel, I believe, was the half I used. So enjoy. Come back on Friday to hear whatever Gawker commenter Kittens talks to because apparently internet commenting is in now since the New York Times just did an article about it, even though we've been talking about it for months. Boris. Boris. All right. Whatever. Brian Lewis Saunders. Hello. Hey, can you hear me? Yep. Awesome. Can you hear me? Yes. Cool. Um, so I guess um, the first thing I want to ask you is, was that you that left a voicemail on the podcast voicemail like last week, maybe? <laughs> no. What, what did it say? It says something about pop about the world population growth. Oh yeah, that was me. I forgot about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was confused because I saw that and it was like it was a Johnson City uh, area code, but you hadn't replied right. to my email. <laughs> so I was. Oh. Weird. I hadn't replied yet. No. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I left. I le- I thought I had sent it, and it was still a draft. It was saved onto the side, and so then I sent it later. That's right. Oh, okay. I forgot about that. I was telling everyone, I was sending everyone updates that night on the um, state of human population. What? And you were fresh in my mind. What do you mean everyone? Just people, that uh, just different contacts. People I know, just different people. Do you do that, like, often? Just call people with weird things like that? It depends on how important I think it is. Uh, if it's something really outrageous that I discover, I will share it. Um, it was something, I think I remember it was, a, I was just looking and um, I'd spent like about an hour watching the numbers roll by on this uh, Worldometer uh, website. And then uh, it was like, man, 70, over 70 million, I think it turned. Yeah, and I thought, well, we're having about forty thousand a day. I think it was uh, four hundred and thirty thousand new people born each day. So I think, well, wow, we're going to hit over seventy-five million before the end of the year of extra people. Yeah, what do you mean extra people? 
like not after you after you add all the people that were born and subtract all the people that died, we're uh, gonna have a we're gonna have a seventy seventy five million more right this year. So so that's probably like about a, a little over each decade we're gonna be gaining a billion more people on on Earth. So this is important because in the sorry go ahead. Go ahead, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, like, uh, they they had, like, I think it was, um, you know, one billion people or less for a long time, hundreds of years. And right. then within a hundred years, they had one, one, and one, and one, I think when I was a child, there was like 1.4 billion or something. Now there's over 7 billion. And I, I'm 40 now, over 40 now. So that's like... I don't know. It keeps getting to be more and more of a problem, but um, I, I don't see how it stops it. People say it's going to, uh, nature takes care of itself, but um, it doesn't do a very good job. <laughs> because, I mean, if 50 million people, and this I thought about a couple months ago, if 50 million people died in a meteor, like if a meteor crashed and killed 50 million people, that's a lot of people, 50 right. million. I mean, usually when there's a natural disaster, if it's like, 10,000 people or something, it's like a really, it's an, out, it's an outrageous uh, uh, tragedy. It's like really a terrible thing. But if 50 million people died, and nine months later, they'd be replaced. So By September, they'd be back like it never even happened. I mean, the damage with destruction would still be there, but we human population. So another decade goes by, you wouldn't even notice that in a grass. Yeah. You wouldn't even see that. Like it, it would not even be, a, it would, the line would still be, you know, moving up. Right. It would like stall, stall for a few months, and then it would be boom, right back up again. It's really crazy to think about. So do you, is this something that like, do you like go through these periods of like just worrying about certain things like this and then just calling people? Well, I don't necessarily know if I worry about it. <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time thinking about it. It's really, really, it's really shocking. But um, to me, but I, I mean, there's nothing I can do, really. Uh, right. I, I, if I find some things, I mean, maybe sometimes I post it on uh, Facebook or I'll post it on Instagram. Sometimes I'll leave someone a message, like a really crazy message or something. <laughs> and uh, uh, every now and then I do the population report on Instagram. I think I've done like three or four of those or something. Like one time it was 10.30 a.m. in the morning and we just reached 100,000 extra people on Earth. And I was like, I had like my voice amplified four different like multi-tracks. Mm -hmm. And so I said, hey, so it sounded like I was in a room full of people like cheering when it reached 100,000 at 10.30 a.m. So you do, um, <laughs> you will build work around this stuff sometimes? Oh, yeah, uh, all the time. I mean, I put it in my... Uh, self-portrait if it's something not everything goes in my self-portrait books but uh, sometimes i will put it in there sometimes it just depends on whatever strikes me really the, but the population thing is a big thing i i've wanted i've been thinking about making an entire album or a performance or something about it uh because it's it's really shocking numbers to think about you know, Bernie Sanders, he's not talking about it. You know what I mean? Like Everybody <laughs> loves Bernie Sanders. So what can he do? How can he stop, you know, a billion people from being born, you know? Well, he's trying to keep them alive. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. I guess the right wing would be more the party of uh, killing all those people off. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, even wars, you look at wars, it's not done anything to the population. Yeah. 
You know, I mean, they look at the Holocaust, and that was a lot of people, like 8 million people were killed, or the bubonic plague, mm -hmm. you know, took out like so much of Europe, like half or a third or something of Europe, and you can't even see that on a, on a, on a bar graph. You can't even see where those things happened. Because there's just so many people. What would this look like as an album? Would it be like another sort of noise project? I have no idea. Well, I'd like to make it a party album for people like <laughs> that want to dance and fuck, and then uh, they have something to think about after they after they after they have an orgasm or something. But you want them to procreate while thinking about the world population? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'd be a dream album right there. Yeah. Like a nice, a nice groovy, like something you put on, you play when when you're doing it type of groove. Like a, I don't know what they call it. I like Swedish uh, Swedish type of electronic or something, electronic music, but uh, some people like Al Green or something. I'd like to do kind of a cross between Al Green and Swedish uh, uh, electro pop or something. I don't know what they call it. <laughs> and uh, something like that, make it really nice and smooth. And then, and then at the end of it, by the end of it, you realized what's really happening. Would you be singing on this? Do you think? I have no idea. <laughs> the only uh, only time the only time I've ever tried to sing before was I envisioned a I envisioned a musical about obesity, and I made up a boy band. I called it a boy band song, but it was really just three me, three different me's, uh, like in sync or whatever. And uh, it was a song called $38 about an overweight girl I watched. Uh, she offered $38 uh, in the back of a Dunkin' Donuts, behind the Dunkin' Donuts in um, Fairfax, Virginia, uh, near the Fair Oaks Mall. Uh, she, what happened was she had $38 to her name to last her the rest of the month. She didn't want to eat anymore. She was really obese. And so she um, was trying to spend it all in one night at Dunkin' Donuts. So she got this big, huge tray of chocolate declares. She was eating them and everything. And she had a couple of friends that were trying to comfort her and she was just crying and everything. But the friends, they couldn't stop her. She's like, I'm going to eat the rest of my money right now, $38 worth of donuts and stuff, make myself sick, and then I'm not going to eat anymore. I won't have any more money for food and I can lose weight or something. Well, then after she ate like a tray of chocolate declares or something, then she... She realized $38 goes a long way at Dunkin' Donuts. She was, like, really depressed. So she wasn't going to be able to do it. So what she did was she wrote down on the back of a takeout menu, uh, like, a, like a contract thing, and um, she said, I will pay blank, blank, $38, which is what she had left, to break my jaw. Because she said if she had her jaw broken, then the doctors wouldn't wire her jaw shut unless it was broke. She didn't want to eat anymore, and she didn't have enough money for stomach surgery. And so then she went, and like a lot of people lined up uh, to break, try to break her jaw, and the bars were letting out and everything. And we got there because it was um, Friday. I forget what they called it. It was a Friday night thing where they every night at like 12 o'clock, they would play the wall, heavy metal, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and something else. I forget what they called that night. But so anyways, we got out of the movie. And then um, that's when all this was taking place. And then right. this one guy, Psycho, he was a punk rocker. But in the song, I say he was a biker because bikers seem tougher than punkers. And so then um, I said, Psycho, 
told her he could break her jaw with one punch. And then he hit her three times in the face and didn't even come close to breaking it once. He only knocked her down to the ground. And so then after that, he walked away to his car and saying it was her fault. She was just too fat and all this stuff. Couldn't break her jaw. And then everybody was screaming, like, get the fat girl for $38. I want that $38. Come on. Like, like, there's a big, huge line of people. And then he came back. That guy, Psycho, came back with a bat. So that $38 is mine. And they were already, they had her head up against the cinder block wall, and, and people were taking turns just punching her in the, in the jaw, and it wasn't breaking still, and then I left. And then I never saw what happened, never heard what happened, never saw her again, never saw that guy they called Psycho again, that, none of that stuff. And I, it's always stayed with me, and then I tell people about it from time to time. And then, sometimes people have similar stories. Sometimes people are shocked they don't know about it. Well, I thought this would be a great, this would be a great song for a musical about ob- obesity or something like that. And, uh, and so then... Uh, uh, that's the only time I've ever sang, tried to sing. What was the purpose of the, of the piece, though? Like, the musical, like, what was the message? Was there a message behind it at all? It was still in development stages. Okay. I wanted it just to be about awareness. Usually I try to do things about, uh, try to raise awareness to some type of social problems or get people to think about different aspects of social problems or, or realize like so from that one from the $38 a lot of people didn't believe it they're like well, who would do that who would pay $38 to get their jaw broken and stuff like that well then one person told me she was the legal assistant working at a law firm or something and they were representing a guy whose jaw had got broken on the job he had said a ladder had fallen and um, hit him in the face and it broke his jaw. But he, the girl, the legal assistant, was really cute. And so he thought, well, he could confide in her. And so he told her, well, I didn't really get my jaw broken by this ladder. I had my friend break it so they wire my jaw shut so I wouldn't eat so I could lose weight. So then she's like, fuck, I got to tell my boss. So then they couldn't represent, he couldn't, couldn't get the workman's compensation for that, but she'd heard about it. And then there was another person that had heard about it, and then uh, there was some other people. I, and I didn't, I didn't want to sing that one if there was someone that was like morbidly obese in the audience, because I didn't want all the people, skinny people, staring at them, saying, "Well, what are you? What are they thinking? What is it? You know what I mean? It's not right." So I had to wait until there was no, no, no people that were really big. But then. I still did it. There was obese people there uh, when I did it. And then uh, it caused some problems at this one time uh, because um, there were some skinny Asian girls were laughing inappropriately. And the people complained because the overweight girls were crying. And then uh, it caused some trouble. And uh, the people were saying, why would you say that? Why would you do this? Why, why, who would pay, who would make up this story? You're sick in the head and all this stuff. And so then I did, I did, uh, the next one was about sucking dicks to be accepted. Because it's a popular thing in high school, maybe even younger, maybe like junior high now or something, like overweight girls are all the time taking advantage of. They just want love and they want friends and stuff like that. And they end up sucking dicks to be accepted and it's, it's not right and so then I was like if you have to suck all these dicks 
for friends when they're not even really your friends, it's just for, for a few minutes of companionship, then you, you might want to pay $38 to get your job open too. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's, it's a terrible world out there. Yeah. And, and, it's a dark side to this obesity problem. There's and there's other other sides to it too, but I never did do it because I wasn't ever obese myself. And um, a lot of times, I never did the the, the whole musical about obesity. But um, I, from time to time, I think about doing performances about it and stuff. But I have to be oh, I have to be sensitive a lot of different people's feelings because I don't want it to come out wrong and hurt the people that I'm trying to that I'm that I'm not they're not victims but the people that I don't I don't want to I don't know how to explain it I just I, have to be careful when I do social problems I guess I, I think I get what you're saying just you don't want to hurt the people you're trying to tell the story of in a way um, yeah and lend a voice to or something right though it does make me curious like what I listened to one of your uh, pieces uh, in which you describe all the symptoms of, schizo- of paranoid schizophrenia, I think it was, and attribute them to God. Oh, yeah, God is not dead. He's schizophrenic. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, who like, is that meant to uh, discredit God? Is it meant to give uh, to defend schizophrenics in some way or people suffering from I- schizophrenia? Well, really, that was just a rant because some child <laughs> was nine years old had been abducted and kept in a closet for three days, bleeding from the vagina, getting raped, and then she was buried alive in the guy's backyard. I think it was in Florida or somewhere. And, I, and like, all these people were praying and, like, play, praying for her to be returned. And so it was only a few houses down, I think, from where she lived or something where they finally found her. And uh, they didn't find her alive. I mean, she died by the time they found her and everything. And then, like, but I remember they were they're saying, like, all these people, millions of people were praying and stuff. And I was thinking, wow, like, if you're praying to God to return this girl, and God is answering the prayers of this child molester, you know, he's got her for three days in the closet bleeding from the vagina and everything like this is wrong you know people something something so i just it was basically just a rant about how um it's just not logical you know and then when i was thinking well it's not logical that that this guy or woman or whoever is your god would answer the prayers of a child one child molester not answer the prayers of millions of people you know, if that's not logical enough, then God, I was looking at God like, okay, let's look at that logically. Well, he's got all the symptoms of schizophrenia. You know, he's got all the signs of mental illness. And so then I just went like off a checklist, like a like a like um, uh, an assessment type of checklist, and then went down. I was like, yep, he's got that and that and that, all this stuff. And this, you know. But you call yourself a Christian in the piece, are you? actually a Christian? Do you consider yourself one, or do you believe in God despite all this? Oh, no. Uh, no, what it is is um, when I was younger, when I was 21 years old, I stabbed someone and went to prison, and then uh, I became Christian, and I got born again like 17 times. Or something because every day I, I was facing some death, and then uh, the people told me uh, a couple inmates told me they said yeah 
um, the Christian brothers stick together. You know, you should start going to Bible study and everything because the Christian brothers stick together. So then I went to the Bible study and it was a chance to get out of the cell block like all the time. And then they had music and uh, people were rapping and dancing and singing and having fun and stuff like that. And then because I was white, I was the only white person in that that prison fellowship. Uh, if another white person came there, I would be an assistant deacon and then I could talk to them and stuff like that. But then I never really had any. I mean, people still wanted to kill me over drama because um, my cellmate fell in love with a homosexual man that he was pimping and then was trying to, he was telling everyone that I was a Nazi and white power and take cocaine and stuff like that so people would want to kill me. So then I would either die or get moved out and then he could move his hopefully his wife in there mm -hmm. with him. It was like some really crazy drama. So then I ended up finding out what happened. I found out all that stuff and they separated them guys and stuff. But um, I was going to the prison fellowship, but I, I got saved all the time. I would say, oh, Jesus, come into my heart right now. Forgive me of my sins, please. Lord, help me right now. I don't want to die, please. Like that, but it, it was like, not a foxhole atheist. I was a foxhole Christian, but uh, then as soon as I got out, I was not a Christian again. I was like, whew, I made it. <laughs> that was really crazy. And if I went to prison again, I would probably be Christian again, a fake one. <laughs> I, I told the people that I called it fire insurance because it, they say, oh, well, you're Christian, you're going to hell if you don't believe this and all that stuff. It's like, well, I just believe for fire insurance. And then they say, well, it doesn't work that way. And I was like, I know I'm joking. <laughs> I don't but I'm surrounded. I live in the Bible Belt. It used to be really cheap to live here, but now it's getting more expensive and gentrified and everything. And the, But it's still heavily conservative and heavily Christian. Yeah, how did you end up there? Because I read in one interview that it happened after you tried moving to China. Yep, uh huh. I went to China. Well, I lived there here before. I lived in Tennessee. I went to East. I was in a homeless shelter. First, I went to Bluntville, Tennessee, to live with my uncle. Okay. And he didn't have any electricity or running water. He was living in like this chicken coop that had a spring and a little garden and stuff. And he was bailing hay for like tobacco money and lottery tickets and stuff. And then after a couple of weeks of that, I was like, forget this. And I took off hitchhiking and then the cops picked me up hitchhiking and dropped me off at a homeless shelter. And I lived at that homeless shelter for like a year or something. Then I got recruited from the homeless shelter to go to college then I wanted to be a great writer, a famous writer or something, but then they didn't encourage creativity. They thought I was developmentally challenged or something. They kept giving me F's, and I, like, I took a placement exam to see where I would go, and I'd already had college English credits in, uh, in uh, was it the eighth grade. I had like six quarters or something, or eight, eight, eight quarters maybe. Wow. Yeah. yeah, seventh and eighth junior high, I was taking community college classes for credit quarters but then i had to go to a semester college at east tennessee state years later this is after i got out of prison and everything so then they recruited me but they would accept my credits but they wouldn't accept my mental status they were like you were developmental and everything and then i was in there with like all the football players and stuff and all these people that were really illiterate like they could not read or write at all hmm. and they just didn't like my subject matter they didn't like my content so they were failing me purely on my subject matter it was like totally insane and then whenever i finally complained about it 
they just went ahead and passed me. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> but then I was done with that with the English. So, but then uh, I was so I stayed in Tennessee. I lived after college. I lived in an office for like a year. Then I was going to live outside for a year. I was going to live in different environments and um, draw self portraits every day and see how the environments affected my perception of myself and then uh, when I went to live outside I was going to live behind the police station in the woods behind the police station I thought it would be the safest because I figured like a lot of people might mess with your stuff or mess with you behind the police station is too close to the enemy <laughs> and so then when the police turned me in on the social workers so then the social workers got me uh, an apartment in this building it's like a government housing building so then I lived in there for like a year and a half or something then I moved to Asheville North Carolina and then, then from there, I went to a mental hospital. And from that mental hospital, I went to a group home where people are really developmentally challenged. And then I went from there. My, somehow my family, I don't even remember how this happened, but my family rescued me out of that place. Hmm. And then I went and lived with them in Virginia. And then from Virginia, I went to China. And then from China, I came back to Tennessee. <laughs> That's quite a ride. Kind of, yeah, I have a lot of friends that move a whole lot more than that, though. They, they move around all the time. But I try. I, I like staying put where it's cheaper. But um, I like, you know, a couple times a year I like to travel or something. So performing has, has been pretty nice for that because a couple times a year I'll get to perform at a festival or something, go to some country and tell them about America's social problems. And then, then I get to spend the rest of the year working on stuff. Was uh, was performing how you started making a? Li- Do you you make a living off of your art, right? Well, I, I wouldn't call it substandard. I wouldn't call it living. <laughs> it, it's really, I don't know. It, I would not call it that. It, it's so far below the poverty line. You can't really do this for a living. I mean, I could. If I, I've had a couple opportunities to decorate the homes of rich people and make them like really like beautiful paintings or like I, I just can't do it I can't just I can't force myself to, to do, do it to do what they want or to just do whatever you want and then they'll pay you for it See, the thing is they will not pay for whatever I want to do okay. like the rich people they have certain rich people have certain things they want to buy and I've seen lists like they will not buy vaginas unless they're titillating. Like if it's an if it's an anatomical vagina, they will not buy a tank on their wall. But if it's like titillating, they probably sell it. They won't buy dead bodies. They won't buy. I know there's just a, there's all this stuff that they won't buy, and like penises and stuff, they're not going to buy. I mean, now you look some artists that they they'll do all kinds of like coprophilia paintings and stuff like that but but they're like fashionable because they're old and they've been doing it for a long time you know what i mean they've got a name so it's like investment they don't even have to hang the paintings up they can keep them in storage and then you know sell them at auction and get a lot more money later on you know a few years later or something like that so it's so disgusting the art world is really it's really disgusting now some people get in it and they they really enjoy it but i don't i don't like it at all really i think the people that are uneducated most of them i think they they if they have money they don't need education if they have money they don't need 
a mind of their own. They don't even know what they're buying. They just they buy stuff out of fashion. They, it's not even art. I, most of the art, I think, in the art world is not even art. It's just like decoration and fashion and stuff for these rich people. And it's like, why perpetuate their taste? You know what I mean? It's like, I just can't do it. I, I don't fault the other people that can do it. And I, I kind of envy them sometimes, you know, they can sell these things for a lot of money. Just make some big colors, stripes and stuff like that. And uh, I understand the history. I, you know, I went to school for it and everything. I understand all about it and stuff. It's just, I can't see personally, it, it, it's like soul destroying to, to spend time away from doing what I want. In 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 the, in the effort to um, try to enrich myself by doing this other stuff for these other people, I don't know. When you started doing the uh, self portraits on different drugs, that made like a pretty big splash. Like you were on Vice and all this other stuff. That you, like, did you like ever? S- Sorry. Like ten years later or something. Oh, was it? <laughs> I didn't even realize that. Oh, yeah, it's like years, like so many years, like 2001 or something, whenever I did that. Huh. So it's a long time, yeah. And um, they, uh, it, it's really weird, the internet, it's timeless. Yeah. Uh, you go on the things, and it, it's such a, it's such a trendy thing, people, companies that just, like the clickbaiting thing they do, where they just, they try to get a different demographic or something, or they want to show some some advertisers, some company, corporation clients, like they can get such a demographic, younger pot smokers or something to come to their website, get right. those clicks. And so <laughs> then they will just steal the pictures, you know, and then sometimes they say, they'll do an interview or something like that, but then um, they don't. It's like some sensational fluff piece, or they'll flat out lie. You know, they just make stuff up and everything, whether you give them permission or not. They just write their own stuff. Yeah, but and all these people that do this type of thing, like for Huffington Post and different places, they they're not even getting paid. So it's like hmm. it's pretty gross too, I think. But I don't know. But did you ever? I just you just have to keep doing what you're doing. Right. But did you ever sell any of those portraits? Or you really sell prints of them or anything during that period? No. Uh, a lot of people would ask me for prints and stuff. And see, the problem is with prints is that there's real print making. There's a process of making prints. And then there's like having copies made at Kinko's or something, FedEx or something. <laughs> you know, and a lot of people are on Etsy selling copies like little color prints for like inkjet prints or something for you know twenty dollars or forty dollars or something like that. And it's not to me. It's just a cheap. It's a piece of shit. So right. it's not like a. It's not like a lithograph or anything like that. And I, I use so many wild. If I did it, I would want to do it right. And I, there's so many. The colors are insane, and so many of those pictures, like you couldn't do really make even nice screen prints out of that stuff. It'd be so many different screens you'd have to use for that, and it's just like I, I just seemed like it, it seemed like it would cheapen it, but I didn't know at the time either that so many websites were gonna just like steal the pictures right. and cheapen it anyway. So, I mean, but I don't know if I even would have in the first place. I never sold those pictures. I still have all those pictures. And I, I did that one. I had a couple offers uh, one time, and um, it wasn't enough. It really wasn't enough because I thought, well, 
if I sell these pictures, I want to, I want enough to get some land and a trailer <laughs> and, you know, have a nice place, a nice little place to own some stuff, get out of debt, you know, get out of, get paid my student loans off, stuff like that. So, I mean, it's going to be quite a bit of money. Plus a lot too, it's like 48, there was 48 pictures in the first exhibit ex- exhibition in France. And now I think it was up to 60 or something the last time I counted. And so you're looking at 60 different paintings or drawings. So it's going to be quite a lot of money. And that's another thing. All these places that want to exhibit them all the time, they don't want to pay the insurance for that. And um, they're like, well, it's not worth this much as something. And I'm like, well, if, if I was to sell it, it was, and they'd say, well, the insurance is supposed to be for the cost of repairing. Like if they get damaged, you can repair them and stuff like that. And I said, yeah, but I need replacement costs because I don't know how bad they're going to get damaged, you know. I want to make sure that I'm covered. And then uh, one time in Asheville, I had an exhibit. I didn't have an exhibit for a long time, like 10 years, because I had an exhibition one time in Asheville, North Carolina, and every single thing got stolen. So it's like, I, I'm like, I quit doing that for a long time. And then I actually flew to the place in France, uh, in Paris, to see where the pictures were going to be at and make sure they had security cameras and stuff. And then I felt comfortable enough, so I just left them there. But I wasn't, like, sending them in the mail and everything. And now, now they have these companies... That just all they do is transport art back and forth across this country and across the world and stuff like that. They have good insurance and stuff, but a lot of them don't want to pay. So they'll make replicas and make like giant foam board type of printout stuff or something, all this type of stuff. But oh, weird. Yeah, it's really strange. It's it's really really strange. Yeah. Um. I'm curious too, I guess, about the portraits. Like the main thing I'm curious about at this point, because you've talked about them so much, like just a documentary about them, everything. Like, do you get sick of that being the main thing you seem to be recognized for? No, I don't mind being recognized for self-portraits, uh, but uh, but the drugs one is kind of it's kind of misleading. Like, so many mm-hmm. kids email me all the time because that's all they know about. And they just want to ask me some questions about that. They, their kids, they think, well, I'll just send them an email, ask them a question. They don't want to take the time to like look it up. The answers are online somewhere. You know right. what I mean? They're going to find some answers, but, but then they don't realize there's other stuff. So uh, I always, especially this year, my New Year's resolution this year was to answer them a lot more thoughtfully. And so uh, about two times a week, maybe three times a week. I do interviews for high school kids or what they call, I think in England it's called 12th year A-levels or something. There's some other system like that, but they're Mm pre-college. Every once in a while there's a college student, but not too much. Usually it's high school. And um, I I just tell them, but I, I like to tell them all about the other stuff because a lot of them, they don't really know too much yet about the world or about drugs or about art and stuff. So it's really interesting. And, and they're really thoughtful. They're not really well set in their ideas yet. So it's really nice to be able to talk to these kids because in like 60 pictures are on drugs. I've got over 10,000 of them, you know? Right. Like a very small percentage of my work has drugs in it, involved with it. But... um it, that's just what uh, 
you know, the world made me like a one-hit wonder for that. Have you ever turned any of the kids on to, like, some of the noise musicians you work with or anything? Do any of them ever seem interested no. in that field? No. <laughs> no, I never have. Um, not with that. But um, <laughs> I'm sure I've had, well, I did that performance uh, at the end of last year with John Duncan under the influence of torture. Oh. And um, I did a bunch of self-portraits while being tortured. And then I got tortured live while I was trying to recite I forget how much it was. It was like 25 minutes of just law, uh, uh, just laws against <laughs> international laws hmm. and um, articles and just like legal articles. And just um, even I had the torture memo, the Gonzalez torture memos from the Bush administration, all the stuff memorized. And I just tried to recite that while getting tortured live. And I, I'm sure I told the kids about that. I mean, I wouldn't <laughs> call it noise. It was noise, muse. It was, it was sound as a weapon. Really, it wasn't. I wouldn't say it was noise. Uh, John Duncan, he, he's a real genius, and um, he really made made that performance something special. I could have never done anything like that. It was beyond my, beyond way beyond anything I had imagined how it would be. What was he? So in, what was he doing exactly to back you up? Well, we're, okay, I practiced being tortured every Monday with my friends Brad and Lisa mm -hmm. and um, was videotaping it and then making the drawings while at, while at the same time. So then I took those videos, combined it, because whenever I started doing that stand-up tragedy stuff, I realized that if you can show people yourself going through it while you're telling them about it, it's like a... It's like a, a shortcut to get them to believe you because as soon as they see you living something or doing something on, on a video and when you're telling about it, like normally if you tell them about stuff, you have to like really convince people or to just so you don't know what you're talking about. But if they can see you doing it, going through stuff firsthand, then it's just accepted right from the start. So then I had that video and then he, when he was living in Japan, he bought a book about the Iranian, it wasn't the secret, it wasn't the besiege. It was, um, oh man, I forgot the name of them now. It's that they were like the, the Ayatollah's special police force, the special okay. police corps, something like that. Well, they had a chair torture chair they made up called the Apollo chair and I think there's hardly any information about the Apollo chair online there's like several papers about it like educational papers or articles and they're all the same exact sentence like same paragraph or whatever they just are on multiple sites but there's no, like just a page and a half or something but I think the Apollo chair because I have a friend Stacy that studies Greek she came up with the idea that they called the Apollo chair because he was also the god of information. And so when they put you in this Apollo chair, they're trying to get this information stuff out of you. So they say, but it's really not about that. It's just about being evil and hurting you and stuff because they can. <laughs> but um, they, uh, this chair, and so we got this book in Japan about the, the special police, and then it had a picture of a guy in an Apollo chair. And then he was like, well, we'll get the festival to build this chair. And I was like, okay. So then 
he had them build the base of this metal chair to fit precisely the size of the amp that was underneath it, like the PA system type of big, huge amp thing. Mm -hmm. So the amp was turned on its back or whatever. The chair was set down on top of it. So then he was running the, the bass and the sounds through the chair, through my body, up into this helmet, and it was just pummeling my head. I mean, it was Holy just shit. beating my head. And then, he, and then I'd sent in the mail to Switzerland. So I, was, they didn't, I knew they wouldn't let me have a plane. I sent a 5 million volt stun gun uh, <laughs> through the mail to them. And then he had, they, he, he asked for a special... He asked for a high-quality contact mic, and it wasn't a, a piece of, it was like real, real high class. And he put that contact mic on that uh, 5 million volt stun gun. And then uh, if you were just in a crowd and you pressed the button on that stun gun normally, everybody would stop and everybody's hairs would stand up on the back of your neck. Uh, it was just, it was like an inherent type of threat sound mm -hmm. but man you put that mic on that <laughs> oh my god run it through those speaker systems and then he had the speakers aimed at the people in the crowd uh, like the sound system was aimed at all the people on the like the floor the dance floor type plates in front of the stage and stuff yeah. so then I was trying to recite from memory going back to the Geneva conventions and um, reading from memory all this stuff in strapped to this thing while I'm getting the shit beat out of me and then every now and then he would stun me and then he he had uh, the sound also he had the lighting done everything he had it all he planned it all out like I I never usually when I get to a festival they say how do you want the lights they say we can do this or that and I say I'll just keep it dark so you can see the videos and stuff and the little light on me is fine or something like that I never really get into it but he was like I'll put this color light over here and have it this way and all that stuff oh man it was so intense now when you look at pictures of it and stuff a video of it it's like it, it, it looks it, it's really professional and it's really intense you can't see in the video though but two people in the audience passed out it was that intense what? it was really something and so why why do you do this like why do you i mean i'm, I'm assuming the audience well, that, wants to wants to do well, this too but like what what's the what's the point of like uh sort of torturing the audience in this way <laughs> well really what if they, if they weren't necessarily being tortured they were watching me be tortured right, but they like, were conflicted because they didn't know if they should stop it or not a lot of people told me they wanted to stop it everyone thought well i want to stop it but nobody did yeah. You know, and, and, well, that's a good, valuable learning lesson right there. And then um, the thing was, well, it was it was in Switzerland where it did this. It was right across the water from Geneva, where they had the Geneva Conventions. And then uh, it was coming up to where they had, uh, oh, what was it? They were reviewing, was it someone? Might have been, oh, Michael Brown's parents mm. were coming there. Uh, like in a like two weeks later or, or the next week or something, we didn't know it at the time. But his parents were coming later to say, "Look, they're breaking all these laws and treating people and stuff in the United States and everything." And they we clearly are. But yeah. what they did was they they slowly changed the laws enough over time. So they, they 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 tweaked words here and there. Just really, well, it was a lot of cunning or something. They really just 
tweak these little words, and then uh, it's no longer the same rules at all. <laughs> they, they, it, they can do anything they want to. Basically, they make the last torture. As long as it's legal, and as long as what they do is the country, if it's legal to do that in the country, then it's legal hmm. to do it. So it's really something else. Uh, they, um, but the, the people, yeah, I would do, well, when the people say, oh, I wanted to stop it, but I didn't, I was like, oh, well, you should have. <laughs> and, and then they, uh, I told them this is how it happens. Like if a car is driving down the road and someone runs over a child or something like that, and then all of a sudden people get, person gets dragged out of the car, a drunk person gets dragged out of the car, and everybody's stomping them or something. You know, people might want to stop it. But nobody ever does. You know what I mean? They expect someone else to stop it and stuff like that. That's how people get tortured and everything. So I, what, what started that whole torture thing was several different things. I've done that documentary, Art of Darkness. And then I was saying you don't have to be tortured in real life uh, to make great art. You just have to care about stuff. You just have to give a shit about things. Yeah. But then I thought, oh, and I've done a performance before. Uh, I'd reenacted uh, this terrible event in Tennessee about an hour west of here where uh, three police and two detectives uh, tortured this guy uh, for his drugs and for his money and uh, basically just robbed him. They wanted to rob him, and uh, he, he wouldn't sign a consent form to search his house, and so they shocked his genitals, uh, they broke his fingers, they put cigarettes out on his tongue and all this stuff. And this guy in Texas, some human rights organization, sent me a cassette tape of it. Of the and torture? The wife, yeah, of the guy being tortured. So then I, what I did was I reenacted this live, and, but I was both the victim and the police. Whenever I was shocking myself, I was the police, but I was also the victim getting shocked. It was really, I didn't want to take it on the road and make a big tour of this thing, so I didn't want to be exploiting this poor guy that got tortured or so bad and everything like that. So I only did it once. So it was kind of back there. It, it was part part of my, uh, I don't know what you call it, but my body of work, there was some torture in it. And then uh, I was watching Syria. This is back when I had TV. Right when the revolution first started, when the people started protesting and stuff. And then uh, I was really into it. I was watching it. And uh, I was watching all these people get tortured under bridges and abandoned buildings and stuff on YouTube and everything. And uh, this is when they still have Facebook. Like Homs, the city of Homs had its own Facebook page and stuff for, hmm. for a little while. But then I ended up, all that stuff got shut down after couple months or something and then uh, I quit watching the news because I saw all three news sites reporting on the same events differently like MSNBC, CNN and Fox would show the same exact video but they would all have their own version of what that was happening in that video and so then I realized these people don't have any idea what they're talking about and so then I just got rid of all my cable TV I thought this was all bullshit but when I was watching all those videos it was it was never like in the movies, like yeah. where they would say like, "Tell us who your, uh, where's your friends, where's the rest of your company, what are you planning to do, something like that." It was just like, ha, 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 "We got you, Ooh, we got you now. What can you do?" And then they start whipping you with whatever was there, like if they had a car antenna, so they had like a brick, they start hitting you with a brick, you know, just like whatever they had, like they could 
they say have like a tire or something, they pick up a tire to drop it on you, drop on you, stuff like that. They'd whip you. Man, they would whip these people in the same spot thousand times. Like, whip you in the same back and the same leg in the same spot, just wearing it out. It was just so evil. And then I sent in an email to John, and I was like, I had just kind of said it in past and never really thought too much, didn't really reflect on it or anything, but I'd said to him, I was like, well, I'm thinking about doing this uh, torturing under the influence of torture while being tortured type of work uh, for for a series or something uh, in case it happens to me I'll be prepared you know it's like so if it ever happens to me I'll know what to expect but I said that in the email and then forgot all about it and then was more caught up in like different aspects of it and the legality of it and I was really getting into that type of stuff and reading about how it came to be that they even started torturing people the United States military even got got the idea to start doing this stuff and then um whenever we were in switzerland we got on the radio like the night before uh the performance and um they were asking us some question or something and he said uh what was it it was so creepy oh my god <laughs> he remembered that and he was like that was why he wanted to get involved in it was because he said uh, to, to prepare yourself if you think you Prepare yourself if you think you can, or something like that was what he was saying. So the purpose, oh my gosh! <laughs> but so the purpose for you is prepare yourself in case you are. There's is there's, yeah, like if this cops ever come in my apartment and start demanding, they start going through my stuff and demanding that I sign some paper, yeah. giving them permission to be there, and they start shocking my balls and stuff like that. I mean, like it, oh man, that 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 guy really got tortured. I mean, this one cop. He said, he said, Eugene, that was his name. Lester Eugene Seiler was the victim. Um, and his wife had pushed record on the tape recorder uh, right before the cops made her take the son down to the store and, so they wouldn't witness the torture stuff. And so then, well, so that's how it got, came to be on the tape. Well, this one cop, I mean, as soon as that door, the slide, 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 that screen door, as soon as that screen door slammed shut, it's just, bam, bam, bam. They're just beating the hell out of them. And then after they stop, like within two minutes or something, uh, this one cop to me says, hey, Eugene, look here. You see these new batteries right here? I'm fixing to go outside and get some wires and hook them up to your fucking balls. You don't sign that paper. Watch what happens to you. Like that. And then this other cop goes, here, just hook him up to 110. And then that cop goes, okay, that'll work. And then this other cop goes, stand him up and I'll take his pants down. Like that, man. I mean, it's just really quick. They're shocking his balls. But I mean, this and is fucking trash. But I mean, like, it's a very practical reason to be prepared. But you're doing this on stage. Like, is there, is there an artistic purpose here? Is there something you're trying to express to this audience? Uh, not really artistic. <laughs> I'm just trying to. When I did that performance, when I when I reenacted that one, yep. it was just to make the people there. Oh, aware that this is no different than Iran. <laughs> this right. is no different than any other country. This is Tennessee, the same state we're in right now. Cops coming into your house, shocking your genitals, you know, doing this stuff, threatening to shoot you, playing a BB gun on you, and stuff like that. Like, it's no different than anywhere else. And everyone there learned that. that yeah. night. They, they would never forget that. So, I mean, it's usually when I do these things, it's, it's I, I have some type of, uh, not a moral or, or, or ethnic or something, but I have a uh, a social 
reason for doing it. Right. A positive social reason for doing it. It's not just a. Uh, it's not for shock value at all. Okay. But I use shock. I use shocking things to get the people's attention and to keep them focused and stuff. Okay. I do do that. Uh, shocking words, shocking language, and shocking videos right. and stuff. That shocking sound or something in order to keep them because when people are shocked it's like um it's kind of a persuasion tactic because um people when you people are shocked they're uh receptive to all kinds of things so, so it's so, kind of a kind of a tactic so do you have any any um would you ever want to i mean you mentioned earlier about like the sort of uh, uh, Icelandic or whatever sort of like dance music thing, oh, Swedish. Like, Swedish, right? <laughs> do you do you ever have any intention of doing anything to like lull an audience into a message, or do you solely believe in sort of shocking them into it? Oh well, see, I I quit doing that stuff, uh, that the tragedy stuff, and then I, then I was trying to I did a bunch of shows trying to um make psychopaths feel things, which was really, I was delusional. I was really delusional thinking that would work. And then I started, I, I started doing uh, recordings um, more and uh, doing um, experimental type of um, recordings with dreams. And then uh, that was like a lulling thing, but I never could figure out a way. I never could come up with an idea to do it live. And, um, but, my, uh, I'd say one of the two, uh, what, I'd say one of the two, uh, what do you call it, the apex or something of this, it's like when you reach a, um, when peak, you reach a, uh, yeah, peak of an idea, yeah. um, like I started off with an idea of just recording different vocalizations from different sleep stages and then I made that album and then I moved on to doing something with dreams I was having these terrible dreams until I woke up every morning and just said what whatever happened in my dream and then I took all the ones where I was like where I sounded like I was a sociopath <laughs> or something then I put all those dream descriptions together and made an album about that. So it was like kind of like purging myself of this like inner type of sociopath in my sleep. I was getting that out. And then um, I did a couple more albums, sleep albums. And then uh, the one the, the one that I think could have had the most potential of an idea to really be a great breakthrough was the Bobcat. And um, what I, I did was I had a dream. By then, I'd conditioned myself, like classically conditioned myself, not only to sleep talk, but also to press record while I was sleeping and record my dreams and my sleep while I was asleep. And so I'd wake up in the morning and not remember anything. But then when I would play back the tape, It'd be like 40 minutes of stuff on there, me talking, having one-sided conversations and stuff. And then uh, it's really, really, really bizarre. And so, but then I had one night, I had a dream about a bobcat. And this bobcat came in uh, to this house. It was kind of like a party or something. And people were standing up against the wall. And I was in the kitchen washing dishes. And this bobcat was like rubbing itself on people's legs as it was going down the down the hallway like cats do. And then someone at the end, towards the end of the line, picked up the cat and was holding it to its face, like, oh, it's so cute. And I was like, yeah, I think that's a bobcat. I was like, I love the bobcats and everything, but 
if a bobcat bites me, I'm going to cut it. You know, it's bobcat. And I was like, yeah, bobcats are cute. And this is what I was sleep talking. I was just saying this in my sleep. I love the bobcats. Bobcats. <laughs> Well, then the bobcat had to go to the doctors because it had a sickness or a pregnancy, is what I said. And then the, doc- the bobcat came back from the doctor appointment and um, was really woozy. It was like on some type of sedative, so it looked even cuter. And everybody was really loving it. And I was like, oh, man, you got to be careful. it. Then the bobcat turned into a woman. I got in bed with it, and then her boyfriend, the Bobcat's boyfriend, came over, and I was like, I said something about him, and I was like, yeah, you know, if you, this guy, you can argue with something, but if you attack this girl or something, I'll cut you. And so, it, like, it turned from the Bobcat cutting up this Bobcat to, like, cutting this, um, this guy. And then, uh, but meanwhile, in between the stuff, there'd be great pauses of silence, right? Maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes or something. There's not saying anything. And then I would say something really cryptic. And um, one time I said, these forwards and backwards revelations are going to breathe. It's going to bring them uh, something because hierarchy is important to them. It's like I had no idea what the hell I was talking about, but it was just something kind of magical and so then what I did was I got all of these recordings of bobcats like purring like in, and in heat and in distress and like all these different sounds and then I slowed them down and played them in reverse kind of like a, like a David Lynch type of thing yeah. and then had speech and I was like and then I got um, Raymond Dijkstra from uh, I think he was living in Amsterdam then to do some sounds for it and the idea was that if you played this recording uh, on repeat with headphones on while you were falling asleep, this bobcat would enter your dreams. And then, for the first time ever, we could have real dream transference from a dream from one human to another. Because not only was I telling the story, because I woke up, at one point I woke up and talked for like 10 minutes and was like, okay, this podcast doing this and that and this and that and everything. So I had the first sleep stage where I was like just falling asleep. I was still aware of my environment and I'm describing what would happen in this dream. Then I had a second sleep stage where I lost total awareness of my surroundings and I was like just saying weird stuff. Then the third sleep stage where I was like sleep talking doing that soundiloquy and then uh, I had the bobcat sounds so I was like this is the perfect way this is the perfect one but then whenever we released this we released this album the the people uh, quite a few people told me oh I'm going to do it I'm going to let them try to get this bobcat dream transference thing going but then when they heard the the bobcat and me saying all this stuff about the bobcat and everything they're like man that's a nightmare I would never I would never want to dream that I I would never want to have that in my my brain and stuff like that I was like shit man that was like the perfect one because it had so many elements of the dream experience what about something yeah, that? Sorry. What about something that like made people feel good or positive? Like, do you have anything like that that you want to do or that you have done? Uh, that's what all the kids are doing these days. There, <laughs> there's so many people doing that already. 
that's what all of the the people are doing. That's what pop music is for and stuff. So you think your purpose is to just uh, depress and alienate and um, I don't know. Like I don't I don't use the word that. torture. You what you sorry? I would say I would hope that some people. I mean, there's always an always an audience of people uh, for me that uh, want to know about these things that have no idea about these things and don't think out. You know, don't haven't thought about things this way hmm. and stuff. So there's no shortage of interested people. It's just <laughs> I don't care to entertain people. If I was to do like that, it would be the same as me making like pretty stripes for rich people's houses. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the same type of thing. Like all I would be doing is like, you know, I, I would be enriching the, enriching the, um, what do you call it? The amenities or something of my life. I don't even know if that's the right word, but <laughs> I, it would not be that it'd be really shallow and, and vacant or vapid or something. It would be worthless really. What about, um, I mean, I guess your book I was looking through is still kind of depressing. The one, but um, the images are really beautiful. The one where you um took the tests they gave you as a child, I think, um, the psychiatrist gave you, uh, the image. Yeah, they, the people. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean those images are like very a lot made. I read a few days ago, and I'm just trying to blur together, but I remember them being quite colorful and um. The imagery might have been upsetting at times, I guess, but um. Well, I mean that's just human psyche for you. Yeah. You know, and and mine and may may be more damaged than the average person, but <laughs> I mean, art is very therapeutic too, so it's really beneficial. Uh, but I I know a lot of people that if they took these tests honestly, that, that there would be some things. And same with the dreams. Like, like I'm sure so many people have these dreams that are really messed up. They just don't remember them. Like me, I didn't remember it. I knew I'd wake up and go, thank gosh I had a nightmare or something terrible happened. All I remember is a semi-truck. But I wouldn't remember all of these crazy details until I started really investigating it and experimenting with recording and stuff so I, I think it's in, it's a part of the human nature really a lot of these things but right. some people live a different type of life they never have any bad things happen to them have no fears or something maybe I, I don't know I, I can't really speak for everyone but those, those tests are really creepy yeah. and um, they're designed a lot of them are designed by perverts and um it's really something else. Uh, the whole history of those tests and the way they've evolved today, it's just, um, it's really interesting. I still, I, I'm not finished addressing that. I still have like about 35, 40 more tests I'd like to take. Like probably two, two or three years worth of um, psychology tests. I, one day, one day I would like to have, I would love to have an exhibit where it's every one of these tests. That'd be cool. Answered yeah. artistically. So <laughs> it's like cutting out, and therapeutically, so it's like totally cutting out the doctors. You know, it's like totally removing them and their bias. Because the problem with all of these tests is from the beginning, they never had a standard way of analyzing tests, a standard way of analyzing people's 
psychological states. And then so then they come up with the picture story test. And so then they come up with all these different ways to analyze a story, but none of them are really valid. It, it, because whoever is, an, the person, the individual that is analyzing the test, all of your responses are being filtered through their brains and their problems and their dreams and their whatever's going on in their brain. So it's like, unless you take these tests yourself, I really don't see much validity into it in them because um, I was reading this one book called A Thematic Test Analysis by Edwin S. Schneidman. And what, what he did was Edwin S. Schneidman worked for the Psychological Corporation in New York. And um, on his lunch break, he came up with an idea for a test one day. And what it was was a collection of background cards, like illustrated on the card would be a bedroom or a doctor's office or a basement or a farm, just different environments on this background. Then the, he, he had an idea for 60 like paper dolls, some naked, some not, some children, some elderly people, some soldiers, some Superman, ghosts, stuff like that. And so then he said, if instead of just showing the person taking the test, um, a picture already populated with people and letting them react to it and tell a story about it and trying to glean any type of information about their personality or any problems they might be having through this, we can let them create their own card, basically. We let them pick their background and pick their characters and let them tell the story on that. And it sounds really good. And then, uh, like a good idea and everything, but it, it never really took off. They pu the Psychological Corporation published it and stuff for a couple of years. But anyways, he, what he did was he invited, he gave this test to one person and had them take, like a, take the test they did a few cards. Then he sent the answers, like the response or whatever, of this individual to like the leading uh, psychologist assessment people in, uh, at the time. He sent them this person's answer said, can you analyze this? And so he was trying to basically, he, and he compared it to another test, the, the somatic apperception test, I think. He had the same person to take that test. So he was trying to like get his peers, like the most respected peers, to analyze this test and see, to kind of promote it. So he had this big, huge book that had, this is what all these different doctors say, and he, he painted it in a real good light. Like this test is like the best new test or whatever. But, I mean, you read these psychiatrists and psychoanalysts uh, tests, and you read their analysis of this one person and you realize these people are crazy. Like this one guy, he had made the children's apperception test, Leopold Bellick. Bellick, every sentence this guy told in the, about this story, like every other sentence, Leopold Bellick said, oh, uh, here he's having a problem with, uh, that means he, he says something about water. That means uh, he has a problem urinating. Oh, he says something about fire. That means he has a painful urination. You know, oh, he says this means he's having this. And what it was, what that was about was, I think, Leopold Bellick had a urinary tract infection when he analyzed this thing. Really, that's what seems most likely to me. But then Leopold Bellick also, from that, came up with this idea 
that uh, Freudian psychosexual stages of development, like the, the anal phase, the oral phase, the phallic phase, where Leopold Bellic introduced the urethral phase, the urethral stage of psychosexual development. It's like all these people just trying to get their own wedge their own little, I don't know, they're trying to put their own little self in this by trying, by, by pretending to be analytical and unbiased and stuff, but the whole thing reeks of bias and, and it's, none of it seems valid to me unless the person taking it is smart enough to analyze it themselves and learn something from the bias. That's why I, I really believe it. I, I had an exhibit about this one time called We Don't Need Another Doctor. We Can Run Our Own Tests. And I, I, I really believe that uh, wholeheartedly. So is that the end goal with all your projects? Because a lot of your projects, like your self-portraits, your um, your 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 book about the uh, tests, your uh, sleep, uh, your sleep recordings, everything. Like, is the ultimate goal to figure out your bias, or is there some personal psychological uh, thing you're trying to work out in the end? Is there a, an end goal in all this? Well, um, it's hard to say. Like with the self-portrait, the daily self-portraits, uh, to me, that that uh, those are well. Even within those, there's different reasons. Uh, you know, one day I'm doing it to purge myself of some unwanted feelings, like stress or anxiety or something. The next day, I'm wanting to do something else. You know, with them, and so it's like. A, Really, it just to enrich the life experience, I think, and to also let people know about some things. I have a social, I have a will, well, with the psychology tests. Mm -hmm. and one, one aspect of that is, if I, if I, especially if I can do all of them, uh, I think it would be really interesting because what I'll be doing is illustrating my personality in a way that's never been done before like a forensic a person that specializes in this type of analysis today or like computer programs and stuff the way they do it now when you get employed when you go for employment you have to take these type of tests right. all of these things I think they're getting more away from I hope they're getting more away from that bias by having whatever software uh, analyze the stuff and that but I don't know if they are but I would like to I, I think it would be really incredible if a, like a forensic psychiatrist could come in there and see my per, my personality in a way like no no other uh, no, nothing like that ever happened in the world you know mm -hmm. I mean like you can look at the Van Gogh paintings and see the emotions of some German expressionists and stuff or you can interpret different things out of stuff but by purposely making the art in response to the story illustrations the art of psychiatry using the language it's their own language you right. know it's their own uh, tools so uh It'd be in a way for that they could understand. I, I think it would be really, really interesting, especially if a psychiatrist that wasn't psychotic uh, <laughs> could analyze them and knew what they were talking about and knew about all of the stuff, the hang-ups and the people's bias and stuff. I think then that could be really valuable. I think it'd, it'd be really interesting to see. I mean, a lot of your art focuses on yourself, on the different facets of your personality, on your image, on your psyche like is there something specific you're 
is there something specific that ties all these together that you're trying to explore that you're trying to find that you're trying are you just trying to like um, sort of whittle yourself down to your core through art to like get your pure essence or something well I don't know uh, if I would call that a go but um, I think a lot of it is just um I probably have some type of unconscious belief that I don't know anything <laughs> at all. And so it's like the only thing I can really study is myself because, I mean, if I... I don't know how to explain it, but it's just, I, I, I mean, it would be really hard to do this stuff on someone else, right. you know? Like if I had, like, a girlfriend or something that would let me, like... Psychoanalyze them and try to record their It would be really, it'd be impossible to do all this stuff because um, you can't. It wouldn't be possible to to record someone else's dreams like that. It wouldn't be possible to record all of their feelings, you know, and make them do this stuff. I mean, I could give people the test, but then it wouldn't be them analyzed, you know. And I don't know. It just it, a lot of these things I do. I feel like it's just. Um, it's a, a, un, un, uncharted waters within the self because it's the only way I have access to. If I had gone to college when I was younger and never got in trouble with the law and stuff like that, maybe I would have become a scientist and studied monkeys or something, you know. <laughs> it's been more scientific instead of now I'm just an artist, you know. And I'm doing these these type of scientific things like experiment things they're really not science they're art you know it's like with the drug things a lot of people with the drug pictures where a lot of people they don't realize I think that if I take this one drug today I'm gonna feel like this you know drug picture feel like that think about that or whatever experience that way if I did it the next day it might be totally different you know if I took the same drug you know, three times you're going to get three different pictures, you know, if you really look at it. Yeah. So, because you're used to it, you don't have any type of anxiety about it or your thoughts about it are going to be influenced by your past experience with it. And or your brain chemistry is going to be different from doing it the first time. Or there's like all these different factors that go into it. So there's nothing scientifically valid about it. Like TED Talks wanted me to come and give some thing one time about it in Mumbai, India and tell them all about the science of doing drugs and stuff like that. And I, it's just foolish. It's like for scientists, and I've had like a neurosurgeon one time uh, in California was wanting me to do some stuff tell, and uh, tell him some things or something. And I'm like, come on, guy. Like, this is not science, you know? Right. It's, and it's like a, a self-portrait, like you can't... And then a lot, another thing, too, is with the self-portraits, and it's with all of them, whether I'm on drugs or not, if you analyze them or if you look at them with some type of idea behind it, uh, the problem is you can't separate. It's, it's impossible to leave your thoughts out of something mm -hmm. so it's like if I'm going to do a self-portrait uh, facing the fear of my fear of heights it's going to be impossible to not think about my fear of heights or something you know if I do a self-portrait on crack it's going to be hard for me to illustrate what that's like without with and omit all of my past 
things I've heard about crack. Like, I'll be right. thinking about Dave Chappelle, you know what I mean? How can I not think about Dave Chappelle, uh, the Chappelle show, if I'm drawing myself on crack? Just my, my own experiences that I've had, you can't just separate that part out of your brain and be a and be a robot scientist. If you do that, which is what some, a lot of people wanted me to do the same picture every time on different drugs. And I would think to myself now, what would that say about myself in that drug? You know, if I got rid of myself, all you're seeing is the effect of this drug. This is what they say they want to see. But really, if you, you don't have any of my, my thoughts and feelings about that drug, all that's left is my motor skills. How much of this drug, this drug, how did it affect my, my motor skill that time? You know what I mean? Like and it's not portraits. really him. Right. And then what can I learn about that? Like, you know, Valium made me a little less uh, sh- uh, shaky or something than uh, Xanax or something. Or like, not shaky, but a little more calmer or fluid or something. That, mm-hmm. I mean, it just seemed like... I, it's not that rich of an experience, so you know. If I take that, I'm just going to do what I feel. Whatever comes into mind, it's like improv jazz music or something. You know, you can't you can't put that in the lab and, and analyze it to death. Right. But that's what that's what people people want. But I just like exp- experimenting with life, experimenting with art, mixing the two together. Sometimes having a social message, you know, social type of moral. Yeah. You know, but not always. Sometimes it's just like, hey, here's how I learned how to record my dreams in my sleep. You know, maybe someone else will come along and do it too, you know, and they won't have nightmares. Theirs won't be so scary, so then maybe someone can really transfer a dream, you know? Yeah. It's like just, you just have to do what you do and hope for the best. Sometimes I wish I wasn't so or disturbed or something so I mean because I've seen so many things in my life that are disturbing that I'm not I'm not desensitized but I'm aware of these things a lot of people don't want to see these type of things you know so it's not that they're desensitized they just choose not to be sensitized you know Hmm. and so I feel like I just have to be me. Yeah. Hopefully, I will make. Hopefully, I can make people more sensitive. That's interesting. Um, yes, I never really thought about that, about making people more sensitive in a, in a way through not traumatizing them, but to a certain extent. Um, uh-huh. It's yeah, by, by shocking them at least. Um, uh-huh. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that. That about covers it on my end. I guess is there anything else you would want to cover or add or anything? Uh, no, uh, except for that movie *Art of Darkness*. Yeah. Um, the guy, the Parker in Canada, the director. He just uploaded a deleted scene, or a, I guess you call it deleted scene. It was a scene. He just uh, uploaded it to the website, the movie website, so people can see about where I've been collecting pictures in the trash. I've been finding pictures in the trash for a few years, and um, he uploaded that. It didn't make the movie. 
final okay. cut ever of that movie. So if people haven't seen the, the movie or the darkness, they can see this deleted scene. That's really nice. It's, it turned out really cool, that scene. Uh, I surprised when I, when I saw it, I was like, oh, man, that should have been in the movie. <laughs> I'll put it on uh, my blog when I post this then. Okay, cool. Yeah, the, I, I love finding pictures in the trash. It's getting harder now because now that they're cleaning up and uh, revitalizing the downtown, everyone's trash can, they're making them all the same. This hmm. same size, same product, same red trash can. Everyone has it. And uh, so now I can't check, you know, 10,000 trash cans or something and hope I find a photograph. It's ruined my ability. It's really, It's really hurt my ability to pictures of people in the trash and I loved it so much people they all the time try to get me to go to flea markets and stuff and try to find them and get them on eBay or something like that it's, like, it's not the same I only like finding them in the trash if I find them in the street that's cool too but yeah. I prefer to rescue them from the trash uh, because to me they're special so I don't know I, I, it would have been nice they put that in the movie but now I'm glad he did it. I'm glad he at least put it online the deleted scene of it online that's pretty neat because they couldn't cover everything in that movie right too much stuff mm-hmm. alright well cool thank you for talking to me that was a lot of fun <laughs> oh no problem uh, I enjoyed it oh good I hope I make sense because I was really I get really excited talking about uh, torture no. and torture <laughs> and stuff <laughs> that's the end real quick go to the blog and check out Sarah Century's Kickstarter she's trying to fund her queer western no straight people this isn't like all those other bullshit lesbian films this is real shit go to the blog, go to the link for her Kickstarter give her some money she's a friend of the show hope you enjoyed, happy Thanksgiving bye bye